and welcome once again to the Primitive Church Podcast. If God is for us, if he didn't spare his son and gave him up for us all, if he graciously gave us all things, if he justifies, if Christ died, was raised, is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us, then what can we conclude? The fifth and final part of Rest Secure asks, who can separate us from the love of God? It's taught by lead teacher Randy Pope and covers Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Thank you for joining us today. It becomes very obvious in life. You show me a person who is extremely insecure, and I'll show you someone who is at least perceived in their own life that they have not been loved. Maybe they haven't been loved, maybe they have, but in their own mind, they haven't been loved. And it breeds insecurity in so many different expressions. Show me, a, show me an adult who, as a child, heard their father say to them, I don't love you. Hear that repeated over and over, or perhaps at least hear this, I love you if, and you can fill in the blank, it doesn't matter what you have to fill it in with, I'll love you if... And I'll show you typically an insecure person. Insecurity shows itself in different expressions. It can be inward. It can be outward. It's demonstrated inwardly in various expressions such as extreme shyness, introvertedness, lack of confidence, uh, indecisiveness, uh, maybe even some form of depression. But there are also... Uh, outward expressions, and maybe it's, uh, maybe it's rebelliousness. Uh, maybe with children, it's showing off, even with adults. Maybe it's vulgarity or overachievement, or workaholism, materialism. They're all kind of expressions. It's just insecurity. But not only do we have the realities of insecurity, uh, really believing that we're loved by people that are important to us, but There's the problem with what we would call spiritual insecurity. It's that insecurity that comes as a result of of not really believing that the Heavenly Father really loves us. We don't buy the reality that, that we're loved unconditionally. In our minds, we keep hearing, I'm loved if, I'm loved if. And because we're not meeting the if qualifications enough, we find ourselves believing we are unloved and we become insecure Spiritually, it expresses itself outwardly, can show itself by, by a moral complacency, uh, maybe outward spiritual rebellion, maybe that elder brother syndrome where there's performance, but there's no relational love. The inward expression, maybe spiritual doubts, feelings of abandonment, spiritual depression. I don't know, maybe you hear that, you don't relate to it, I hope not. But if you do, and many of us do, we can look back and trace and realize it has a lot to do with to what degree I believe I am loved and to what degree I love. I read something years ago, uh, noted psychologists, psychiatrists, and all the studies that have proven that basically you need two things. You get these two things, you're in good shape. You miss them, you lose everything. That is, you got to love and you got to be loved. And to the degree you have that, regardless of the rest of life, you're okay. I believe there's some truth to that. 
We are today completing a study in Romans chapter 8, and it comes out of verses 31 through 39. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. The subject matter of these verses is the spiritual security that is fostered by God's revelation to the extent that we embrace and believe God's love for us. So Paul is here, I mean, arguing against every challenge imaginable of God's love so grand that it cannot be taken away. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be derailed. Nothing can happen to it. It starts in verse 31, which we've already studied. Many of you, though, new to the study since then. But the text at large begins with the words, what shall we say to these things? And then he ends up with five responses. And these are what I put in your outline as five realities. And they're all raised with a question that cannot be answered with any answer that could be convincing that God would take his love away. No way. We come to the fifth one, and I'm not going to read through the previous four. You can read them in your outline. But we come to number five, and it reads like this. God's acceptance guarantees divine love. And we're going to pick up in verse 35. I'm going to ask you, if you will, one last time in this series to stand as we read the word of God. Romans chapter 8, and I'll begin in verse 35 and go through verse 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake... We are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, We believe this to be the word of God. It is inspired of God. It is infallible. It is inerrant. And we believe it is the rule for life and for practice. And to the degree we embrace it as such, that we find freedom. And so we're going to now take our seats and let's turn to the word of God Now, let's find out what it's saying to us. So you'll understand the the overall here. Verses 35 uh, through 37 is the last possible challenge that could be brought up. Everything else has already been touched on. When you come to verses 38 and 39, it's a summary of all the arguments of verses 31 through 39. But in reality, it's a summary of all of the teaching of Romans chapter 8. Now, all previous challenges have really been directed toward God's attitude of love as it exists for us. This one's going to turn it around a bit and it's going to pose the question, but wait, what if we choose to revoke our love for him? What about then? Does he still love us? Let me give you an extreme illustration. I want you to imagine that you are the person that I'm now describing. This person is a man that I met in Iraq. It was just literally days 
maybe a week or two after Saddam Hussein had been captured. I am very cautiously meeting with some pastors there. And I meet with one who has good English and he tells me his story. Imagine this to be your story. He tells of how he was arrested because he was preaching the gospel and put in jail by the regime of Saddam. He said, we were put in a a little cylinder block building of sorts that was three to four meters wide, three to four meters long. He said, basically a very small little block building. He said, there were probably 20 to 25 of us that were confined to that building for a 30 day period. Now, we understood and we knew what happened here. You had 30 days of torture, and then on the last day of the month, you'd be executed. Now, you can imagine, you, you can only stand side by side. You cannot sit down. You cannot lay down. He described the story of how, as you can imagine, the stench of the place, complete darkness. And that was their lot for 30 days. Except for when they open the door to one by one, take them out, different ones, different days, and torture in ways that I would not even describe to you. And then to hear this man say, but you know, that was not the bad part. And I'm thinking, what could be the bad part? So the bad part is when you can tell of the sound as they bring, the soldiers bring your wife or your daughter's. And what they do to them, as you can only imagine, in the hearing, and you know it's your family. Now, can you imagine that you are put in the situation to say, if you will deny your Jesus at this moment, you will be released. Just deny your Jesus. Now, they weren't given that opportunity to deny Jesus. He was released only because... Of what happened at that time. And they got released because of what happened in the history of that war with us coming in. But you know there are so many stories. You can read them in Fox's book of Martyr. And wherever you want to go. And you'll see one after the other. Thousands upon thousands of stories are given. Of Christians who were put in similar type situations. Only to say if you'll deny your Jesus. We'll release you right now. All this stuff you're going through. It ends. Just deny your Jesus. So the question we would ask ourselves, what would we do? And then we read the word of God and it says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before God. Now we come to a text and it says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. We need to reconcile this. How do you view that? We're going to come back at the very end of the message. And I'll bring back the Iraqi situation. You try to figure out the answer when you read the word of God. What do you think the answer would be? Does God reject that person? Does God embrace that person? Now, having said that, if you look at the fifth question that we have in our text, it's the question this. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? God's acceptance Guarantees divine love? Well, the question is, who? What? What is going to separate us? Well, we have to answer the question, what do we mean by the love of Christ? 
That's the most important question of all because if we don't get that one right, we miss everything else of the text because we got to answer, wait, does this mean my love for Christ or does this mean Christ's love for me? The love of Christ, what do you mean? Mine or his? Please understand the teaching of this text is about his love for us. Who's going to separate us from his love to us? Not our love to him. Can it be separated? And that's what the apostle is going to attack. In verse 37, interesting verse there, it says, But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Interesting that the past tense is used. Christ is still alive in the heavenlies, as Paul writes. Why did he say who loves? But he says, no, who loved? Past tense. Why? That's the way of him saying, for him who died, past tense. He's not still dying for us. He has died for us. It is his love that caused him to die for us. And it is upon that death that we're loved by him. That enables him to show forth forgiveness because he's died for us. It's been the teaching of the last four weeks. Now. As we kind of see a, a general overall picture there, I want to pull out three truths that I think unless we understand these three truths, and I want to state them so we see them, unless we embrace them, I truly doubt that we're going to be a person of great spiritual security. We'll always be questioning. We'll always be saying, I wonder, what about? So let's look at these three. Number one, the love of Christ does not eliminate hardship and suffering. Uh, come on, do we not kind of have this, each of us to some degree, this sense of, uh, no, wait, God is, we call him sovereign. He's omnipotent, all powerful. He knows all. He has all authority, all power. We ask the question, is there anything God can't do? Oh no, God can do anything. Wait, can God heal somebody who's sick? Well, yeah. Could, could God Turn any circumstance he chooses around from what it is. Well, of course he can. But you see in my life story, he's not. And he is for this person. He's not for me. I got to believe that he loves them a little bit more than he loves me. And that the way we feel. What we're going to see in scripture is not true at all. That's not true. In fact, though it would be inappropriate to build the opposite argument, I think you would find more reason to think you should build that argument based on Scripture than any other. That, no, no, it's, it's those of us that are going through the worst of trouble, the greatest hardship, the greatest pain, that God loves the most because it's those he loves, he disciplines, and so forth and so on. But the truth of it is, you never want to say, oh, look at your circumstances, and that's the way you can determine the love of God. And so, how do we come to that? He puts in verse 36, and I'm going to flip the scriptures around here. In verse uh, 36 of our text, he says, just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, this is out of Psalm 44. What's it stuck in there for? It's because the apostle Paul writing under inspiration says, you guys have got to get this right. 
Look, we are. We're being put to death all day long. It's not that, oh, we've been put to death. God doesn't love us. No, this is a text about the love of God. And he says, you got to know this. We've been put to death all day long. That's, that's the prophecy of old. It's the reality of today. And that's what Paul's saying. Jesus taught it this way in Luke 21, verse 16. He said, but you will be, uh, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends I mean, God's not going to stop that. And they will put some of you to death that God would let people to die like that. And he says he loves them. Absolutely. And you'll see why more as we go through the text. After listing in verse uh, 35, these terms, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. He follows it with verse 37. Look what he says. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. See, it's in these things. He's actually in these things we've just mentioned, all of those horrific things of life. He says it's in those things that we overwhelmingly conquer. Again, we'll come back to that. But it is not escaping them that we conquer. It is in them that we conquer. In fact, more than conquer. All right, so we read. Wait, I thought it says that not a hair of your head will perish. What about John the Baptist? He lost his head. Hair went with it. What he's saying is nothing shall separate John from the love of God. There's nothing. Not a hair of his head will perish. Not saying you're not going to die. You're not going to be persecuted. You're not going to have troubles, struggles. Nothing in God's word ever has suggested that ever, ever, ever. But we tend to believe it, do we not? And as we do believe it, we hear an if. I love you if. Because of what you do, maybe I don't love you enough. Because if so, then. And there goes the insecurity cycle. Well, first of all, just to know, love of Christ does not eliminate hardship of suffering. Number two, this is kind of the major point of all the points. The love of Christ cannot be diminished or withdrawn from a believer. Now, Paul is listing here in the text the most potential candidates to be at least perceived as evidences of God pulling away his love. Here's how he lists it. First of all, he begins with the pressures of the world. First, tribulation, which is referring to the troubles of the world. Maybe that's the Connecticut of today. What we're just experienced over these last few days was such a tragic killing or distress. These terms come alive. Do they not? When you think about the pressures of the world, it literally refers to the anguish that's experienced persecution, which is mistreatment. He said, whatever the pressures of the world can't separate you from the love of God. Well, what about lack of provision? But what if God doesn't provide this? Well, he says, famine, lack of food, Nakedness, lack of clothing, no. Don't think for a minute because of those you've been separated from the love of God that it could do so. It cannot. And then he just says, what about all other potential threats? He starts with death and life. Death probably meaning the threat of death. Life probably referring to the calamities of life. He talks about angels and principalities probably referring to the good and the bad spiritual beings that exist that are supernatural. He says things present or things to come. So he summarizes all of time. Then he moves to space, height or depth. 
And then it's as if he says, I can't imagine what I've left out now. So he just says, or any other created thing, come up with it. I don't know what it is. But he says, nothing is going to separate you from the love of God. Nothing. You can't come up with what could be an evidence of God's love having been separated from you or from me. So we ask the question, all right, what about the person who does follow? And then he turns away. Maybe we don't have too much trouble with a person who says, you know what? For six years, I, uh, I was a Christian. I said I was a Christian and I followed and I did all the things and I was one of God's people, I guess, at that point, if you consider him God's people. But I've rejected everything now. I don't believe it. I'm not a Christian. I don't care to be a Christian. Now, the person we go, oh, well, maybe I understand that one. But what about the person who says, you know, I lived for the Lord for a long time. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, but you know what? I have no interest in following God right now. I don't have any interest to do the things of God. And it doesn't bother me that I don't, quite frankly. I want to live for me, and that's the way I'm living. And I'm not buying all this teaching and truth about Christianity, they say. I am a Christian, but most of the stuff about everyday life and living, I, don't, I just don't even follow it. Now, wait, does that person keep the love of God? The answer in every... In all you can't come up with a scenario the answer is yes they keep the love of god but it's yes but you have to add but was that person actually truly a real believer the answer if a true believer oh yeah nothing's going to separate that person from the love of god but we have to seriously question when you see the, the life and what somebody experiences and does in life to say, but is that really a Christian? Well, they said they were and so forth. That doesn't matter. Matthew 7 makes it very clear. Many will come to me that day and say, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, perform any miracles in your name? He says, depart me. I never knew you. It's not that I loved you. Now I don't. I've never loved. I've never known you. That's just not even there. The person who says, you know what, I am a Christian, but, and you sense there is nothing of heart and interest. You have to wonder, was that ever a Christian? The parable of the soils. Everybody gets them so wrong. They don't catch this idea of the soils. There's the first soil. Oh, yeah, if you're familiar with the text, the, the seeds planted and the birds come and take it away. And that's the evil one taking away the truth that never even rooted in the, in the life of that person. Okay, you know, they heard the word, but they're not a Christian. The last one. Oh, yeah, there's fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. Yeah, that's a Christian. What do you do with those two middle fruit? Or the two middle seed, uh, uh, the soils? Uh, there's, the, there's the story of the, the rocky soil, and it, it springs up, but very quickly, and it doesn't survive. Or the one with all the thorns and so forth, the riches of the world, and they just choke it out, and there's no, there's no fruit. Well, the teaching begins, as many of you have heard here taught, it begins, you shall know them by their fruit. The last person, they only have 30 fold, not good, but nothing separates them from the love of God. 60, normative, 100, amazing, doesn't matter, nothing separates from the love of God. But were you ever truly a Christian? That's the question. But if, then always. We should never, never doubt it. Why don't you look at Romans 5? 
verses 6 through 8. This helps understand a little bit of that. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the point. When we were at enmity with God, his most bitter enemy, he chose to love us by sending his son to die for us. Now we've been redeemed. And now we start running back toward a life very similar to our old. But now running as a child, we're then running as an enemy. And are we saying that God would love me as an enemy running, but he would not love me as a child who is running? Oh, no. All wrong. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Helps us understand why he might do this. It's a classic text on the teaching of marriage, husband-wife roles. But it says, husbands... Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And here's the point. Look how he loved the church. Gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her. Hmm. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church. Here's the key. He might present to the church himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. You see, you and I, as his children, are his gift to himself. And he says, what I'm going to do is I've taken you out of the world. and I've made you my family. And now I have one passion and desire. And that is to change you, to purify you, and ultimately bring you to myself. To be presented to me as the greatest present I could ever have. It is my bride, the church. And he's going to take his bride and say, not you. I don't mind dying for an enemy, but I, no. I mean, he is all over this idea of, of what he is doing for himself in keeping us in his love. He's not going to drop us. So Paul put it this way in, in Philippians one, verse six. He says, for I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in me will perfect it until the day of Christ. Now, did he begin the work? I don't know. Somebody's heart's attitude might show maybe they're not, never have been. But if you are, man, oh man, he will complete it. All right, number two. Now we look at the third reality or truth, and that is the love of Christ enables believers to be super conquerors. Now, I know our text reads more than conquerors. It literally is super conquerors. And this is what you got to love here. Well, who's the conqueror? Well, the conqueror is when it takes all these potential threats to our love. and, And we can say, I'm holding on to God's love. In spite of all the distress and persecution and issues, I'm still hanging on to the love of God. That's the conqueror. He says, no, you're not a conqueror, Christian. You're more than conquerors. Well, what's that mean? Well, a person who is a warrior, a a king in the Eastern world goes out and conquers another king. And that king is therefore conquered. And so the one that does the conquering is the conqueror. All right, I'm a conqueror. But he says, no, no, you're not a conqueror, Christian. You're more than a conqueror. What's that mean? 
Well, he can take that king and say, I want to put this king that I've conquered and I'm going to put them in my servanthood. They're going to be my slave and they will do anything I choose for them to do for my benefit and my good. And what Paul is telling us in this text is so beautiful. He's saying, guess what? You know, that list of stuff that's so bad that in our minds has the potential to separate us, at least from the perception of God's love and Maybe even to convince us that he doesn't love us. Ah, uh, Christian, you can be more than conquerors because what happens with you and me is we take those very things in that list and we start seeing how God uses that to my benefit. You talking about taking the enemies of life and putting them at our, at our aid to be our slaves. Yes, that's what he's doing. And scripture after scripture after scripture identifies that being the case. Look at your Bibles. Or at our text here at Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seventeen, it says, "For momentarily, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison." Now, wait, the affliction, the stuff that was convincing me, maybe I'm not loved of God, and what is it doing now? It's producing in me an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison to anything imaginable. Wow, huh? More than conqueror there. We take a text like uh, Romans 5, 3 through 5. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Why is that? More than conquerors. Because now tribulation, which used to say, does God really love me? Look at the tribulations. Oh, no, no. Now I see it. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, character, uh, hope. And then it says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy spirit given to us. There's more than conquer. Oh yeah. You talking about that, that bad stuff, huh? My slave now being used of God in my life to purify me, to be presented to Jesus as the gift of all gifts or James chapter one. Beginning verse two, consider all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the test of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You understand, Christian, that you're not just a conqueror. You're a super conqueror. You now got your very worst challenges becoming your very greatest ally. In the help of defeating the very thing you hate the most. God allows what he hates. To accomplish what he loves. We've said it so many times. He even takes our enemies. And makes them our slaves. Well let's close this out. Let's go back to the. Iraqi pastor. You are in that situation. I'm in that situation. And, and we break. We hate it, but we do. Now you tell me what happens to you. If he turns around and says, you know what? Glad you denied your Jesus. Now we execute you. Forget your freedom. Takes your life on the spot. What's your next second? Your next second is to be in the presence of a loving God. And we look and we say, oh, God, I was so afraid. He said, did you not know what I said? Nothing shall separate you from my love. 
No one is able to pluck you out of my hand. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I told you that. And then we look at our life and how feeble our faith and how unwilling and all the struggles. And we think, how can I be loved? Put it aside, Christian. And now start embracing the reality you're loved. So Paul says it this way. He says, I am convinced. I am persuaded is literally the word. That none of these things shall separate us. I am persuaded. Here's the question. How did Paul get persuaded? What was it that persuaded him? And it would be a whole other teaching to go into it in detail, but I'll tell you the summary of it all. He was persuaded by the truth of God. That is a passive mood. You can take a, 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 a verb in the Greek language and you can find what mood it's in. And this happens to be a mood that says, I was persuaded being passive in the action. I didn't do anything actively to be persuaded in the sense that I persuaded. I didn't persuade myself. I was persuaded. Well, how did he get persuaded? Because some of us are saying, I want to be persuaded of God's love. I doubt his love. I don't believe it. I can't. I want to be persuaded. How do I get persuaded? And the answer is truth. Truth is what persuades you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why you hear the church, your leadership, us here saying, as we even confessed, the word of God, get me in the word daily. Let me be a part of your truth. Let your truth, of, truth absorb my mind, my heart, everything. Because it's in the truth that we're persuaded. Well, what's the truth that persuaded Paul? What was it? And there you got to go back to the verses immediately preceding it. We've taught it already in the last few years. That verses 28 through 30. What's persuaded him? Is it the fact that he's been promised that he's going to be glorified? Well, that's big, but it's not big enough. No. Glorified to be stripped of all sin, to be given full glory and a renewed body and all that goes with it. Oh, he's promised that. Yes. But that's not enough. You got to go back a step. And how many Christians do? Most do. All right. I was justified. And I've been declared right by God. Well, maybe I just got to believe the truth. I've been justified and therefore I am persuaded that nothing. Uh Uh-uh. I don't buy that. I don't think that's going to get you there. You got to step another step over and say, I was called. Called? That's right. God has called you to himself. And he's called you to say, come, I want you as mine. And the call is irresistible where you can't help but say, yes, Lord, I come. I want you. It's because he called us. Man, if he would call me, that's real love. As an enemy, he called me. Yeah, but let me tell you, that's not enough. You can't just start there. And so he precedes that. He says, and predestined. I don't care how bad you hate the term or the thought. Accept it. If you want to be persuaded of the love of God, then you come to the point to understand the teaching of our God in Scripture where he would say, I have chosen you. I've chosen to call you. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But, oh, my goodness, understand the love of God. Well, you know what? Even that's not enough. You go back to the first step in that same text. And he says you were for 
known, which means for loved. You were loved before the foundation of this earth. That God chose to call you to himself, to declare you righteous, so that you might be part of a major, unbelievable, magnificent package called the church. A people for God. When you start there and you embrace the truth of God, you get over here and now you say, man, I'm loved. Will anything separate me from the love of God? Oh, no. Nothing whatsoever. And you and I would stand before God like that Iraqi pastor would had that been his lot. And hear the Lord say, nothing's going to separate my love from you. Enter into my dwelling. Would we be saddened? Would we be grieved at this point, at that point? Would we be saying, oh, it doesn't matter now? Oh, no. I think everything in us, though the joy and the bliss of all God gives us, we'd be saying, oh, I wish I'd never done it. Like any other sin that might take us into the presence of God. But if his, always his, forever and ever and ever. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we, as we close our time out, we pray that you would bless. That you would bless in a way that we might, that we might forever believe with deep, deep conviction that nothing, no one, no thing shall ever separate us from your love found in Christ Jesus. If nothing else in our life, grant us this petition that we might believe that love forever in such a way that it transforms us to love as we need to love. Grant it for your honor. I pray for those here outside a relationship with Christ as we finish this series that now might be the day of salvation and that there might be hearts now that they don't even understand that are responding to a call from you. And we find ourselves saying, yes, Lord, I want it. I'm ready. Give it to me. And may we forever give you the applause and praise knowing that you have given it to us. We ask this in the great name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.